This is Fundraising Radio, and today is a guest speaker of Emmanuel Pleitas, investor and co-founder at East Lost Capital. And he was also a special assistant to the legendary chairman of Economic Recovery Advisory Board, Paul Walker, during the crisis of 2008-2012. And because of that role, uh, we'll, part of this episode will be actually focused on comparing that crisis to the current crisis from the startup perspective. So Emmanuel, let's kick off by you giving us some background on yourself and on East Lost Capital. Sure, thank you for having me. So I am one of the co-founders of East Lost Capital. We're a new lower middle market private equity firm that invests in companies where tech enablement can continue improving uh, their outcomes. So we we love to say that we're tech enabling the world because we're willing to go into any industry almost uh, that is not capital asset intensive, uh, find good businesses and help them with their technology. So through that, we have sort of a three-pronged strategy where we spend more time on, on research on the front end than most other firms. We love to use technology and big data to find companies, whether on the front end to find a platform investment, but also to add to do add-on investments. And then third, we have this amazing group of technical advisors that serve essentially as the operating partner role of most other private equity firms where they help us from identifying companies to the due diligence of companies to eventually when we acquire a company, they could serve in an executive role, advisor role, or even a board of directors role. So that's that's sort of our, our secret sauce, uh, which we don't mind sharing with the world because at the end of the day, it's all about execution. <laughs> right. uh, and, and we're excited to look at any and all companies that kind of fit in that lower middle market. Right. Got it. And first question here would be, how do you find those companies? So how do you find all those investments that you will make eventually? Sure. So we have a tech-enabled sourcing process that includes a- aggregating as much data as possible from, you know, we have access to some of the data sets that most people have access to that you can subscribe to. But aside from that, we like to collect our own data that sometimes is either offline or it's data that you have to manually uh, find because you can't scrape it or you can't uh, subscribe to it. Uh, So through that process, we end up creating our own proprietary data set. After we have our own proprietary data set, uh, we continue enriching it um, as time goes on by more data that we find, but also through conversations that we have with our own network. And that leads me to how we layer on our own network analytics where we identify people that we are all connected to um, from our firm, whether it's the founders or technical advisors, so that we kind of layer on the sort of how to get to the CEO. Because at the end of the day, when you look at a company, usually the the better companies out there are not necessarily looking to sell. They're, they're just focusing on their business. So we want to be the first private equity firm that reaches out to them, or at least the best private equity firm that reaches out to them so that we can provide just capital for our, our tech-enabled solution for them. So just to clarify it, just to make sure that I understand correctly, basically you go through places like Crunchbase and PeachBook and find some startups that might be fit for your model based on some specific metrics, right? Yes, that is that is the the first part of the solution, mm-hmm. absolutely, and and not just those two entities, but you know there are a number of new entities also that have popped up uh, throughout the last call it five to ten years that are aggregating data on companies, which which we love, right? Because that that just right. allows us to gather more data uh, so that we can make better decisions. Well, can you name a couple of those, or are those part of your secret sauce? 
Yeah, I mean, look, you can look up company data and you can find uh, the vendors you mentioned. You can find vendors that have actually taken a step forward and created APIs for you to connect to them. Um, so, I mean, you know, without having to name them all uh, and make it a commercial for them, I mean, there, there's just a ton of them. And and I would say for any investor out there, it's, it's no one data vendor is the end all be all. So whether it's the two you mentioned or any others, that's not what's gonna get you the the best data. You need to be able to aggregate it, compare it to each other, create your own analysis, because if you only stop at one vendor, then you're gonna basically see the same data that everyone else mm -hmm. sees, and that's not really differentiated. So the magic is to be able to look at multiple data sets, acquire your own data as well, and then be able to run analytics on it so that you can make your own decision on which are the best companies for you. One thing I'll know is that we've noticed that there are probably more data vendors that focus on the venture capital earlier stage type of investing, mm -hmm. and there's less in the non uh, venture style investing world, and and that's because there's even less data, right? It's it's very sexy for journalists to write about venture capital because it's right. nice to kind of throw those big, you know, number of zeros out there of how much a company raises. But at the end of the day, there's are there are many many companies that have never raised venture capital, uh, or maybe only took in a little bit of money from you know friends and family. And they are building successful businesses. And, and so those are the companies that we love. And so it's an interesting thing where we actually get pitched by a lot of data vendors that are pitching to venture capital firms. And while we appreciate the venture style because my partner and I have invested in that style as well, uh, we love to, uh, we, we're, we're almost counterintuitive because we, we don't want, we don't care about the data uh, or, or at least we, the, the data that shows that, that the company raised a bunch of money is mm -hmm. actually a negative signal for us, those, those, most of those folks actually drop out of, of our um, opportunity set, if that makes sense. Oh, nice. That's actually an interesting approach. So, what other metrics are you looking at in your model? So, when you're just, you know, scraping uh, like hundreds and hundreds of companies, let's say on Crunchbase, because that's the one I use the most. Sure. Uh, what are the major metrics that you're basing your decision off? So, uh, you're like. So the algorithm looks at, I know, the number of uh, monthly visitors of the website or the amount of capital that they raised or the founding date. And it says like, okay, this is the company that will uh, select for further review. Where are those metrics? Sure. So I'll start with growth uh, conquers all. Um, we are definitely growth oriented, but I, I the caveat is that there's a lot of people that talk about growth from a venture capital style, which is code for just late stage venture. We're not late stage venture, but we care about real organic capital efficient growth. So back to my point uh, of a few uh, a minute ago, it's that if you raise a hundred million dollars, that your growth is being catapulted by that hundred million dollars, obviously, right? Good or bad, right? Because there, there's some companies right. that know how to manage hundred million dollars and they turn that into a billion. But there's some companies that raise a hundred million and you know they have five million of revenue. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I could buy a company that's never raised any money and has five million of revenue today. And, and maybe they're not growing as fast, but they're more capital efficient and the growth is more organic, if that makes sense. So while growth conquers all, you have to understand how to understand how, how to analyze growth metrics, whether it's like you said, user growth, right, or or follower growth. Uh, if it's more consumer, I think those metrics are a little bit more consumerish. 
on the enterprise side, if it's software, then you obviously you want to, yeah, there's a bunch of data out there on, you know, what companies are using your software. Uh, there's also uh, public mentions, right? There's sort of mentions in in sort of industry regs, enterprise type of publications. Uh, you can also notice it through, uh, you know, being mentioned by uh, your your vendors or or you know as as a customer, right? So there's other ways that you can kind of find. If you want to get deep into it, you can you can notice. Uh, did you lease new office space? Although now in COVID-19, it's probably less relevant. Um, a big one that right. a, lot folks, uh, a lot of folks like to look at headcount growth on LinkedIn, right? LinkedIn is uh, an amazing company and they don't allow you to take that data although there's a lot of folks that are trying to figure out how to take that data um you know without uh, outing a bunch of people <laughs> so so there's a lot of this data that that, that um there's a lot of different metrics that allow you to um have at least a suspicion or uh corollary to growth but then you have to then layer on the fact of whether or not they've raised money so if you raised a bunch of money um, you usually get knocked out from our perspective, but for another person, for another venture capitalist, they might love that because they love the signaling that like the Sequoia Capital invested in you in the past, right? Um, but for us, that that doesn't necessarily mean that you're a good investor. It means you're a good follower of other brands, mm -hmm. which is fine. It's a fine way of investing, but it doesn't necessarily show your investing skill, in our opinion. And so we love to challenge ourselves because that's where we find the best returns into companies that haven't raised money from anyone or have raised money from no name firms or family offices or random angel investors, because those are the companies that maybe are off the radar from all the follower type of strategies. And those are the ones where maybe we can negotiate a better entry point as an investor into the company and then help them with their tech enablement. So one thing that I've noticed um, at prior firms where I was at is that sometimes we pass on companies because maybe we felt their technology wasn't that great. And that's what I believe is actually a missing uh, piece of the puzzle from an investor perspective that cares about technology. In, at ESOS Capital, we love to look at companies and as long as you're, you, you're building a pretty good business that is growing, then we can say, okay, lack of technology or maybe not as proficient technology, that's actually an opportunity. And we see that as an ability for us to step in there, be hands-on, roll up our sleeves, deploy our technical advisors, and help get that company into a more tech-proficient manner, which obviously it should end up lifting margins, creating a better funnel on the sales and marketing side. And hopefully in when we sell, we can sell at a higher multiple. Right. That's actually, I love that approach. I personally, not the biggest uh, fan of PE firms, but... Still love that model, uh, probably even more than venture capital. <laughs> so uh, I like that. But let's move on to they, the they all they all have their place because right, uh, right. a lot of uh, big institutional investors are chasing yield and they need a, they need places to deploy the capital. Exactly, exactly. So let's talk about the thing that you mentioned earlier, which is seeing on the company's board. What does it mean to be a hands-on investor? So how does it happen? Basically, like. More than half of the investors that I met are saying that they are hands-on investors. You know, they are trying to help the company, et cetera, et cetera. How do you see this happening? What's your role as an investor in the company? I would say if 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 you don't say that you're trying to help the company, um, uh, you're in the minority because everyone right. says they're trying to help the company. <laughs> yeah. Now the question is like just you know logistically, right? If you if you have 20 portfolio companies, you're one investment professional. It is and you're looking for new investments, you're deploying new capital, it is probably pretty difficult for you to help all those 20 companies, 
right? Just you just don't have enough time. You can have all the great intentions right. in the world. You can have the greatest network and connect the founder to those people. Uh, but it is really difficult to help 20 companies at a time. So when you think of, uh, you know, put my, my McKinsey hat on in terms of understanding how to build companies internally, the operations yeah. of companies, you need to understand span of control, right? And so if you're an investor, like the most companies you can actually help is probably only three to maybe five. Some are more talented and know how to manage their time or have a better support network and they can get six and seven maybe. But it is really difficult to help more than that. So then when when an investor says they're hands on, I, I, I you know, take take it with a grain of salt as a founder uh, and really ask the follow up questions like, well, how many other companies are you trying to help? And what does your help consist of? Is, is your help just providing intros, which is quite frankly, not trivial, I, like intros matter, right? Especially if it's a, an investor that has an amazing network of people that you want to be able to talk to, right? right. Potential customers or potential follow-on investors later on, that matters. But when we think of a hands-on, we think of actual operationally hands-on. We think of actually helping you with every line item on, on your income statement and balance sheet, right? And think of how you mm -hmm. manage your resources in the best way possible. How do you create real value, right? Is it launching new products to the same customer? Is it launching new product to a, a, a different type of customer, right? Is it just making your product leaner, right? In, you know, decreasing your costs on a per product basis, right? Increasing gross margins. There, there's sort of a lot of things you can think about that you can slice and dice what quote unquote help means. And, and that's what we pride ourselves on is that we take a real analytical approach to figure out where are the value creation uh, levers in your company. And that's what we want to do. Now, uh, you know, that, that's all mumble jumbo to some people that are not consultants, but <laughs> it, it just, you know, brass tacks. Do you want to sit on the board and, you know, just pontificate at board meetings? Or do you want to say, hey, here's what I think you should do and let, let us help you. Let us find you the right people instead of having to wait for an executive, you know, uh, hiring staff or consultant to to find that new executive let us find them for you right if it's if it's thinking through the strategy of launching something else some new program or product or service let us actually get in the weeds and and, and help you determine that plan so we can go to market faster instead of spending a lot of time strategizing and again hiring consultants or any any third party to help you with it so that's what i mean by that and, and you can serve on the board you can you can just be uh hands-on with helping find new talent uh or you can again back to the sort of intros of customers you can not just intro to a customer but actually have initial conversations with potential customers to ease the business development and partnership on ramp so that eventually these uh, customers or conduits to customers are more easily attained by the company. Right. That's actually a very precise description of a hands-on investor. And I think you've hit tons of really valuable points here. But my next question was about, you know, hopefully, hopefully I don't hurt other other VCs out there that you know, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure they're okay. Uh, I'm pretty sure every single VC out there has a decent self esteem. So I'm pretty sure they are confident that, that you're talking not about them. Yeah. But, and, and the last thing I would say is that a passive investor is also not bad. It's yeah. just a different style. Right? Exactly. I mean, Warren Buffett, you know, w without getting into too much because every, you know, everyone has their own view of Warren Buffett and their own stories. But, you know, he, he's 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 famous for sometimes making investment decisions on, on a, not a whim, but but a, in, in a very educated way, but quickly. 
right? And then trusting the management team to run the company, right? right. He's not an operator his, his, himself. He has, there's been, you know, points in history where he's jumped in uh, to, to help kind of oversee a process. But at the end of the day, there's many passive investors that are great and they just know how to pick out good management teams that can that can run with it. And quite frankly, sometimes when I talk to my venture capital friends that have the 20 plus portfolio companies, I say, it's not bad to say you're passive, <laughs> right? Just provide the capital right, right, and, right. and trust the management team because that's what you're doing. In fact, I love, uh, I, I heard a, a session recently by um, some VCs where they said, we focus on the fundamentals, right? And it's like, what's the fundamentals for a venture capitalist? For uh, a hedge fund investor or someone, you know, that's looking at companies with a lot of financial data, when you say that I focus on the fundamentals, that means you're focusing on the actual financials, right? You're focusing on on margins, you're focusing on, right. you know, kind of uh, uh, trends within the business. That's the fundamentals. But but the, uh, some venture capitalists say focus on fundamentals is understanding the management team and trusting the management team, right? And, and so <laughs> the fundamentals mean different in different places, different styles of investing. And so for some investors, that passive style actually works. In fact, I am invested in one company called Nadine West that has never taken VC money, has only taken angel investor money, multiple rounds of angel investor money, but specifically We've decided, uh, and I don't want—I don't want to say we. I've, I'm part of the—I'm part of the, the the investor group, but it's the management team has decided. There's no need for us to like go go Google Gaga over that new venture capitalist because they're likely going to be, uh, quote unquote, hands on, but in a way that's almost distracting to the team. And, and so most of the investors are passive, and that company has done phenomenally well. It's one of my best investments ever, and and, and so there's room for the passive investors as long as you have that good management team that can run with it. That's really a valid point. I personally actually prefer to stay, you know, untouched. <laughs> so I would say that I prefer hands-off investors as well. So the question is, how do you identify if an investor is really hands-on or hands-off? Should you like go through their portfolio and talk to the founders that they've invested in, or is there a faster way to do this? Sure. Just just like us investors uh, always want to do uh, customer checks, right? When I actually do calls with customers, interview customers of of a company we're looking to invest in, whether uh, I would say some folks in the in the kind of earlier venture style world they like to do that on the front end in the private equity more kind of robust um fundraising processes or banked processes sometimes we do that on on the latter end right because the company doesn't want you know 10 different private equity firms sniffing around and talking to the customers so there's a different way of talking to customers but in that same vein if you're a founder and you're trying to do due diligence on the the investor it is absolutely fair game to one ask for reference uh, or two, just do your own, you know, channel checks, right? And by channel checks, I mean, you know, in this case, channels of other uh, portfolio companies of theirs and find out, like, are they active? Are they not active? Do you care about that? And if they are active, are they value added, right? Do you want them to be active? So there, those are, uh, that's probably the most typical way to figure out if someone is active uh, but you know you you that's why you want to talk to the investor and make sure that you really get to know them so that you understand uh, how they think of the company uh, going forward I've, I've heard you know amazing story when 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 companies go up into the right and they continue growing everyone's happy no matter how hands-on or hands-off the investor is but when things don't go up into the right and the company has some hiccups along the way 
I've heard of horror stories, mainly from founders, where investors at that point, they kind of sink their teeth in and say, yeah, remember all that fine print in the, you know, share purchase agreement or, uh, you know, or whatever the transaction uh, documents were. Yeah, now we're going to exercise it because we don't think you're doing the greatest job. So we're going to figure out how to either, you know, put in a new management team or, or oh, make wow. sure that we block, you know, certain material decisions for the company. And that's when, you know, if you didn't do the upfront due diligence on the investor and get to know know them uh, and and almost plan for bad situations the the, the conversation when the hiccups happen uh, don't doesn't end up going too well and the same thing I would say with founders forget even investors just founders and co-founders you need to have the worst case scenario conversations up front like what if you have right, a founder right. breakup and and I I, 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 I don't want to say a hundred percent but more than the majority of the companies that I've uh, interacted with in one way or another um, have had founder breakups at one point or another. So, so it's it, it's almost bound to happen at some point, right? And, and so Absolutely. you need to have those conversations up front. That in a worst case scenario, here's the way we deal with that situation, or eventually, quite frankly, dissolve the company. I had a good conversation with one of our advisors recently, where he said it's expensive to dissolve a company. It's expensive to stop business. So you need to have a budget for that <laughs> up front, and and that's oh, part, wow. part of the dissolution of a company. Company, right. I mean, there's legal costs involved and how do you deal right. with whatever the assets that are remaining, even if it's not a capital asset intensive company, there's intangibles and, and how do you deal with that? Right. And so those are all the things that as a founder, you need to be thinking about up front and just have plans in place. Ideally, you never have to touch them, but make sure you're prepared. Absolutely. Preparing for the worst is like the my mantra, <laughs> probably because I'm Russian, but also because <laughs> the worst always happens during it. It's just startup life. Uh, sure. But let's talk about the worst in the past, which is the 2008 crisis. So you sure. worked at the U.S. Department of Treasury. Super great job under super famous people. I personally I'm a big fan of one of your bosses back then, so I'm really excited to talk about this. So what do you think is the major difference between the crisis of 2008 and 2020 from the startup perspective? Sure. From the startup perspective, I would say that the financial crisis uh, or the Great Recession in 2008, 2009 um, was, so we'll get into sort of the the Federal Reserve and Treasury actions, right? Federal government actions um, that in in this time frame, at least the last few months, have been way uh, stronger and faster. Uh, and you can argue that that's better in the short run, right? Look at the stock market; it's it's behaving in a way where like everything is hunky dory, but in the real economy, it's not, right? And, and so, in in the financial crisis, I would say that took a little longer. And quite frankly, there was a change in administration, right? The financial crisis started in the Bush administration, and and then you had a, a new president elected in November, which was after all those massive financial entities went under. And then you had 77 days of a transition from one government to another. Now, you know, I was part of that. So I, I don't want to say that, you know, like we I feel like we actually did a pretty good job. But but the, but that change in administration definitely had an impact. Um, now, I would say once the new administration came in, 
then you know it was like okay now we're all you know working 24 7 on on fixing everything we can uh through the new administration's agenda um which was definitely a kind of coordinated global effort and in this case we're not necessarily coordinating as much around around the world right good or bad now back to the startup perspective mm -hmm. for for a number of those reasons i feel that um in the financial crisis of 2008 2009 um because it was more financial in nature versus you know, a, a, a induced by a by a virus, by a, by a health uh, care situation, uh, the the dramatic uh, decrease in capital availability in the financial crisis was much deeper, and so any startup uh, that was trying to raise money or needed cash at that point felt it much more uh, during the 2008-2009 timeframe than they are doing it now. Now this. A crisis is is obviously uh, through uh, healthcare uh, virus situation, and so because of that, it, it's it's very different in nature. And the capital availability actually didn't dry up. It dried up for maybe two to three weeks in the in the broader capital markets, so in the big kind of mm -hmm. markets. But overall, it didn't really dry dry up, as in it wasn't available because the Federal Reserve immediately pumped so much money into the economy, and the big investors out there. They may be paused for a few weeks to kind of collect their thoughts and figure out where their portfolio companies were, but but they were deploying money. They've been deploying money over the last few few months. So so from a startup perspective, if you had a good business, uh, you actually were able to raise money in the last couple months, and and the VCs and private equity firms all adapted. Uh, now this economic contraction is is not done, right? We still have crazy high unemployment that happened uh, very quickly. And so, you know, and, and you know, the, the unemployment insurance uh, dollars that, that a lot of folks are getting are going to, you know, dry up at the end of this month and we'll see what Congress does, you know, in the next month. Um, so there's a lot of things that are still yet to be determined. And so the economic contraction could still be happening and will still hurt more startups. And, and so, you know, there are startups that obviously were hit the worst, right? Any startup that's tied to travel, leisure, hospitality. Uh, but then there's a lot of startups that are tied to that are not tied to those industries that are growing even faster, right? Look at the the Zooms and Shopify's of the world and anyone in that ecosystem. So anyway, it's it's a mixed bag. In 2008, 2009, it was much severe broadly because all financial entities essentially needed to shore up their capital requirements and, and the capital availability uh, was almost stopped for everyone. Well, in this case, the capital availability didn't really stop. Maybe it, it froze for a few weeks, but then it sort of resumed. And only the industries that are tied to that kind of 20% of the economy mm -hmm. that I mentioned are the ones that are the, the hardest hit. But everyone else uh, can still go out and raise money and, and, and you know, they're still going to take a hit because the economy is all tied together, but it's not going to take as much of a hit as, as some of the other industries. That's actually a very positive answer. <laughs> very <laughs> yeah. positive attitude. And I'm well, positive, totally but then there's still a lot of yet to be determined. So yes, I, don't paint, right. I don't want to paint a too rosy picture, but the reason, <laughs> the reason that even my answer is somewhat rosy is because the Federal Reserve has signaled so much has already committed so much support and signaled even more support for the economy. So there will be some industries that are going to be much take much longer to recover. Um, but right now, at least we're we're all betting on the Federal Reserve. Uh, and if you bet against it, you haven't made much money in the stock market. Yep, you have not. Which is, I think, great. Federal Reserve finally learned it lesson from 2008, I guess. Uh, so they react well, pretty I, nice. I, again, I, I I hate saying that that is the right answer. It's just a fact. Because yes. we don't know 
if the fact that we're that the fact we're, we've increased the debt load more than economic growth over the last 12 years and now so much more i mean i, I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing i think i think it's a good thing if we survive it right but you know if it continues and at some point uh it's going to have you know it's going to reverberate throughout the economy absolutely absolutely and hopefully we'll resolve the problems with the debt uh, i'm curious how by the way but we'll, we'll see we'll see that in the future uh but let's move on and talk about early stage founders whom i've heard struggle the most right now during the fundraising process because most of the capital that's actually getting invested it goes to later stage companies according to my previous speakers don't really have any detail on that but i believe my speakers <laughs> so i assume this is correct and uh what do you think, what would you recommend the early stage founders who just who are trying to raise money right now during this pandemic and who are not necessarily directly benefiting from coronavirus? So I, I don't necessarily believe, you know, what your other speakers have said, um, that, but but I'll give it I'll give it a rationale for why it could be the case. And, and the reason it could be the case is that investors, especially early stage venture capitalists, um, when you don't have financials to analyze, what do you bet on? We talked about this a few minutes ago. You bet on the management team. And how do you how do you understand the management team or the founders? You have to meet them, right? You have to shoot their right. hand. And that can't happen. So it's just harder to do due diligence for some of these earlier stage investors. So maybe some of these earlier stage investors have been gun shy on 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 betting on these you know, earlier uh, uh, companies, uh, but I wouldn't say they're still deploying capital. Trust me, they're, like I, I've seen many of my friends in the earlier stage VC, they're still deploying capital. In fact, I'm helping one of the companies that I'm invested in raise a little bit of money and, and we're gonna raise, you know, uh, half a million dollars. So like, it's it's still happening, right? Uh, but but yes, if, if you're a founder, you're doing, uh, you're, you need that kind of seed, you know, pre-series A type investing you're going to have a hard time because you can't meet the investors, but the investors still want to deploy money. That's what they're getting paid to do. And so you need to figure out how to show them the results, make them trust you in a way that is virtual and that you didn't have to do before or that you relied more on that person to person meeting at some point. Uh, and, and that's, that's the different uh, ball game that, that you're in. Right. So, so I wouldn't say it's that investors are deploying less, right? Because let me just give you almost, statutorily right and not necessarily regulated but but uh, mm -hmm. uh these venture capitalists if they're a real venture capital fund meaning they raise institutional money to deploy their job is to deploy capital right it's right. not to deploy capital only in good times their job is to deploy capital right now if you're talking to the individual investor that is the angel investor that every now and then dumps 50k 25k 100k into a company that's different they have their own personal things that they have to deal with, right? Maybe they have to pay for more things at home, right? Maybe they're maybe they're one of their family members got laid off and they got to help them. That's different. They are not a professional investor, right? If that makes sense. Professional investors have funds that have LPs and they have traditionally a 10-year uh, lifetime. Meaning, in good or bad. Over those 10 years, you need to one, deploy the capital, and then you have to actively manage those investments to make sure that they work out. So by definition, any professional investor that has a fund, early stage or not, they have to deploy capital. So if you're a founder and, and those are the investors you're going after, you just have to go figure out how to make sure that you're telling your right story in a better way virtually, and you can't rely on the on the person-to-person -person meeting. Uh, and if you can do that, you can raise capital. 
Right. That's actually great. And again, positive outlook into the future. I think that's <laughs> this episode turned out to be much more positive than I've expected, to be honest. So let's move on on this positive note to the last question of today's episode, which is going to be a call to action. What's that one thing that you would recommend the listener to do as soon as the episode is over? And so I'll say for for the founder, uh, maybe because of this whole virtual situation, you may have to show more proof points. So I've always told any founder that I talk to and anyone, whether I've invested in them or not, the best type of fundraising is revenue. Right. Get revenue. Sell. Sell your product, service, whatever you got. If you know how to sell that product, you will build a good business and investors will find you. Investors will figure out how to get to you. Now, it doesn't mean you want, you don't wanna run a professional fundraise process. You still wanna do that, right? And 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 yes, absolutely, you can't run, uh, uh, you can't burn a bunch of cash on your own money, right? Unless you're personally wealthy. So at some point, if you want that super high growth and and kind of cash burning process to, to, to super high growth, yeah, you're gonna have to raise some money from investors that are okay with, with cash burn. And so at some point you do, you know, if you want to go that path, then it doesn't hurt to raise that, that type of money. But the best metric is the fact that you can get your own revenue, and that's the most important. So so that, that should be by, by far the most important advice that you take from anyone because that's going to lead to success at some point. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, for, for, for investors listening, um, stick to your strategy, right? If, if you believe that you're a good investor, your strategy should work through thick and thin. It shouldn't work only in uptimes, it should work in downtimes as well, right? You're, the way you analyze companies, you should be doing the same thing. And, and your, your limited partners, whether today or later on, they're gonna trust you because you know how to invest in uptimes and downtimes. So stay the course, trust your strategy. Now, if your strategy isn't working in these downtimes, you know, maybe that's the time for to do a little gut check for yourself right. and then say, oh, maybe because I was following the super high multiples of a few months ago, mm -hmm. uh, I may have to change how I think about companies, right? Or I may need to change how I analyze companies and that's a whole different ballgame. So let this crisis situation be your guide and to pressure test your strategy. And if your strategy needs to change, I'd rather you do it today then, you know, once you build a firm, you're 10 years in and you end up blowing up, right? Which happened to a lot of firms in 2000, 2001, right? And we sort of had the kind of zombie VCs out there that, that happened because a lot of firms essentially, you know, followed a strategy that was just, you know, follow and, and buy up. And then all of a sudden things blew up and your next fund wasn't that great. Right. That happens. And hopefully the, 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 this episode just got a little bit darker. Darn it. I was hoping that we're going to end up on a positive note. But as I always say, you know, this podcast is just an emotional roller coaster, ups and downs, just like in a startup life. So people get used to this and follow Emmanuel's advice. I think it was great. So we'll wrap it up here. My personal advice, by the way, my personal call to action is um go out check the description of the episode i'll include a few links that manuel mentioned and a few resources that i would personally recommend you to use to find investors and validate them so at this point we'll wrap it up thanks a lot manuel for coming up and for sharing your knowledge in this field i think it was great and the ending was good as well even though it got a bit darker so thank you for that <laughs>
My pleasure. All right. We'll we'll talk again soon.